Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder Podcast Extra, episode 21, with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers, and Andy McBride. And hello, listener. Hope you're having a good week or weekend whenever you're listening to us. So let's uh, catch up with our co-hosts and discuss what's been happening over the weekend and in particular this week. So we'll start off with yourself, Craig. I think the funniest thing I saw this weekend was a tweet that came around the Celtic match where you said, um, a show of defiance is a bit fucking late. Uh, with commentary like that, listener, you're in for a belter. But more importantly, Craig, how have you been keeping? Yeah, not bad, mate. Not bad. Work's still busy. Very much looking forward to lockdown being at least partially lifted. So go out for a drink and, and see people. But yeah, I'm all right, mate. Thank you. And Andy, I'm suspecting this pod might turn into a two-parter with a potential commentary around Man United's performance versus Leicester. So let's, before we dissect into that performance, how have you been keeping? Yeah, I've been good. I mean, as Craig said, I'm looking forward to being able to at least sort of sit outside of a drink with a few mates. Um, and yeah, looking forward to hopefully the end of the tunnel. So yeah, looking forward to it. And other than that, I'm good. Nice one. So lads, lots to cover off. In particular, we've got the World Cup qualifiers as well to allude to as well. Um, but let's start off with the FA Cup. So as noted by a number of social media posts, at least Ollie can't say that he's fallen at the semi-final stage. So that's a big tick for him there. Um, but yeah, let's reflect on the results so far. So Chelsea won, sorry, 2-0 against Sheffield United. An own goal by Norwood and Zayech confirming that win. Then we had, obviously, Bournemouth losing to Southampton 3-0. Uh, Everton lost 2-0 to Man City. And we'll go to the big game that happened, which was Leicester 3, Man United 1. So a double from Ian Nacho and Tillemans that secured the win for Leicester. Uh, Greenwood with the sole consolidation for United. Um, so let's start off with yourself, Andy. Um, where do you start with that performance? I mean, it was quite shocking, wasn't it? And the team was all over the place. Yeah, I think they put it like really simply, they had an absolute stinker. Uh, I think it's the sort of really the simplest way I could put it, really. Uh, one thing that did surprise was the lineup because normally credit to Ole, he's put um, a lot of um, put sort of strong lineups mm. in the FA Cup games. Uh, with, but with that one, you know, against arguably the toughest opponents he's faced so far in the competition, he did make a few changes, uh, especially in midfield. So we had a midfield of um, Van der Beek, who's obviously not had too much game time recently, uh, Fred and Matic. Um, and, you know, with obviously Pogba just coming back from injury and Marshall, who's been in, the, in and out of the starting lineup and obviously not been in the great of in the best of form, really. Um, whereas, you know, Leicester had basically the strongest line that we granted they did have the full week of rest. I think United have played double the amount of games that Leicester have in the past sort of two or three weeks. And maybe that was a factor, especially going away to Milan on Thursday night, uh, where United needed to put out a strong lineup in order to get a result. So as much as, you know, the, I thought the lineup was weaker, than it should be. I can understand the reasons why, but either way, it doesn't excuse for what was an absolutely pitiful, pitiful performance. I mean, on every every facet of the pitch, we weren't doing it right. We weren't defending well. Um, I mean, obviously for the you know for the first goal, I mean Fred's back pass was 
everybody could everybody could see that one come in. You know, United do try and play it out of the back, but sometimes you just got to lump it. And Fred, you know, despite being resilient, he could. He can run with the ball all right and he's got a good energy, but he's not a very good passer. He's not very perceptive of the space around him. Um, and yeah, it was just a, it was just a bit of a cock up waiting to happen. And he did it three or he did it two or three times leading up to that goal. Uh, that mm. was the really annoying thing about it, you know, if, and plenty of other fans noticed it, especially when I was looking at social media. He kept giving the ball away in really bad dis- positions and the one thing Leicester you know are good at especially for Brendan Rodgers team they can keep the ball really well I mean Tiedemans and Didi you know as much as they're both physically imposing players they're really good on they're much much better on the ball than um, you know than Fred is and obviously Matic you know he's five years ago would have been perfect for that kind of game but he's his legs have gone now and he needs to be moved on I mean Van der Beek like he unfortunately that's just a player who's very, very low on confidence right now. He's an absolute shadow of a player that everybody sees Ajax. Like, you know, this was, for me, this was a really big opportunity for him. You know, a lot of people are saying we need to give him more game time and he needs more chances. And yet he gets a big, he gets a chance in what's arguably the biggest games of the season for United um, and flattered to deceive. Uh, but yeah, there's nobody, there was nobody really that had a decent game. I thought, you know, Henderson was all right. He didn't really do anything wrong. Tellers was quite good in an attacking sense and Greenwood played well. Aside from that, everybody down to a man were putting in four or five out of 10 performances. You know, Leicester were much a better side. I mean, in the at in the mm. show turning to uh, bloody Ronaldo on um, <laughs> you know on Saturday or Sunday rather, like he was he was brilliant. Like I knew was, I've always known he's a decent finisher um, from his days at Man City, but his hold up play was really good. Um, he was getting in the right areas of the pitch. Like nobody was really getting anywhere near him. Um, and Tielemans, like he would walk into that Man United lineup. Easily, like if yeah. you look at that Leicester squad and look at their recruitment, like for you know, whilst on the one hand we're paid, paying eighty million pounds for Harry Maguire, you now I look, I looked at that starter lineup. I thought, well, Fafana would, Fafana would start at centre back. Um, Tielemans and Didi would walk into United's midfield. Like they've got you know four or five players that would arguably walk straight in. Uh, so it's not like we lost against a team we shouldn't have lost to. Uh, but mm. it's another it's another opportunity lost, and obviously what wasn't lost on a few people was some of the comments that Ole had made uh, regarding trophies. Yeah. Now a lot of it's been taken out of context. So it's basically he basically said a comment like uh, which basically summed up as you know winning a trophy doesn't mean your club is back. It can often mask a few of the problems that are at the club. Um, you know, it's often your league position which dictates where you are progress rise. And a lot of people have sort of taken that a lot of people who are Ole out unsurprisingly have taken that as oh, there's no ambition to win trophies. Um and uh, you know, which probably might not be necessarily the smartest comment, but it was taken out of context. Uh but what you know, if you look at Arsenal last year, they won an FA Cup. Uh, but where are they? But they're tenth in the league. So have they made any progress? Probably not. You know, to put that argument out there. But yeah, it's disappointing because it was a real. You know, especially when at half time when the draw was made to a draw with Southampton. Yeah. Like, you know, 
whether it would have been Leicester or United that would have gone through, you would have backed them to beat Southampton and get through to the final. Mm. Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't really see anything other than the Man City victory. So, yeah, it's an opportunity loss, but I think what it does show is the complete lack of depth that United have. You know, you make a few changes and we look a whole lot worse. Uh, so, as, and, you know, one thing, I do criticise Ole a lot when it comes to for example, making substitutions too yeah. late, not reacting to things quick enough. But in all fairness, he did on the six. You know, just yeah. before the sixtieth minute, he made four subs at once. You know, bought in all the big guns. Unfortunately, kept Fred on the pitch. But you know, he did what he could to change the game. And literally a few minutes later, we conceded a third goal. And it was just like I said, it was just a bad day at the office. Uh, but I think it does mean that the Europa League perhaps is gained more in importance because I think with United fans, I think as much as you can see, you know, as much as we are making progress, you know, especially from how Mourinho left the club, there does come a point where you go, okay, when are we going to start seriously challenging the trophies? Um, Mm. And I think that was a big opportunity. Like I said, it was a big opportunity missed, but you know, it happens. There's no point being overly reactionary over it. You know, it was a bad day at the office. Leicester were the better team. And you, you have to try again next year and go for the Euro, go for the Europa League as our realistic trophy option. I think if we could finish the season second in the league and win a trophy, i.e. the Europa League, I think that'll be an all right season. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we don't, that's probably when sort of questions might be asked. And Craig, I don't know about you, but I felt Oli got it wrong in terms of he seemed to be resting a lot of players that he'd normally rely on. And I was just trying to work in my head when obviously I saw the lineup is what is he saving them for? Um, Appreciate obviously they had just come off that victory at AC Milan only a few days ago. And obviously travel and fatigue may play a part in that. But do you think he really got that wrong in terms of his decision around the team lineup going into that match? 100%. And I would like to think that clubs like Manchester United look at their fixture list four to six weeks in advance, so they'll know that there is a potential second round Europa League game on the Thursday, they'll know that there is an FA Cup quarterfinal on the Sunday and if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to rest players during that period, there's ample opportunity to do so in a league where you're going to comfortably finish top four anyway, so why not rest players then and then actually go and try and win these games just before an international period? I was surprised and don't be wrong, the game was on six hours after the old firm game started, so I had more than a few beers <laughs> by the time that I started watching the Man United game. But I remember the lineup coming up and I thought, well, they're not going to win this game. If you look at at the end of the season, Manchester United's Player of the Year awards, the top three will be Bruno, Shaw mm-hmm. and McTominay. And you can't go to Leicester, who are a genuine top four team. They're a really, really good side. You can't go there without your three star men and, and get a result with that. And Bandy's absolutely right. I thought, Leicester were fantastic on the day. They moved the ball really, really yeah. well and really impressive. And Telemans and, and DDA is right to point them out as well. I thought the two of them were, were fantastic, were absolutely excellent. But rotation is one of those things you either do it or you don't. If you're going to do it, I think you have to do it all through the season so the players coming in know their roles. They've got match fitness. They've got confidence. You've got to keep that mm-hmm. going or you never do it at all. I think dropping people in like this for a game here and there, a Van de Beek or a Matic, I don't think you get anything out of them because they're, just, they're not ready, they're not match fit. Um, so 
yeah, I think it was probably right to rest players during this period. Um, but I think you're also right that it was, it was probably the wrong game to do so. Yeah. And as Andy alluded to, a good draw for Leicester as they face Southampton in the semi-finals. And in the other tie, we've got Man City playing Chelsea. So certainly a spicy semi-final there. But we'll move on to the Premier League, guys. Um, a number of results also came up during that same weekend. So we saw... Villa lose to Spurs 2-0. Vincius and Kane there with a dubious penalty. Uh, West Ham drew 3-0 with Arsenal. At one point, they seemed to be rolling with it. And uh, it was only until the 30th minute until Arsenal actually woke up and started to play. Granted, uh, two own goals there from West Ham really helped them. And the Lacazette equaliser made it 3-0. Um, but the big game that happened was the Brighton results. So Brighton won 3-0 against Newcastle, um, really casting a lot of shadows over Steve Bruce. Um, if it wasn't bad enough that the fans hated him, he admitted after the match that he didn't have a clue what to do with that squad. Um, and I think, obviously, it's obvious to us a lot on the pod. We've been seeing it for months, let alone just you know in recent weeks. Um, there's been a lot of speculation around... Bruce's tactics, um, arguments around certain players. So Matt Ritchie obviously clashing with him, suddenly dropping like Carl Darlow, who was having really good form. And, you know, by all rumours, he was on the cusp of making this England squad up until that drop. And then there's also question marks from the Newcastle fans around why the Longstaff brothers haven't been appearing. So they've not been included. Um, So if we start off with yourself, Craig... If you were Mike Ashley, would you actually pull the trigger right now? I think if he has any aims of staying in the Premier League, then they have to do something because it almost looks like a foregone conclusion. Newcastle are just stinking the place out. I mean, they're so bad. I mean, you can I watch games of football and you can roughly see what I say they're trying to do. But with Newcastle, it's just 11 players out there just humping a ball about. Sorry if any Newcastle fans are listening, but I hope they get relegated. I really do. From the, the, the owner to the club, to the management team, to the squad of players, they just don't bring anything to the league. Just fuck them off. Get rid. I would, I would far rather have fucking Norwich or somebody else in the league. Just, just get rid of them. They're just dropping that stone. Um, yeah, and although, although Fulham have had a bit of a rocky patch now, I would still find them to stay up because I think Newcastle are just just absolutely rotten. I've got nothing, I've got absolutely nothing good to say about them. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm a bit biased, obviously, because of the Mike Ashley Rangers thing. So I, I don't like Mike Ashley more than most. But they just they don't show any ambition mm. at all. They've got a couple of good players. I mean, Callum Olsen and St Maximan. I really hope they can get out of there and actually play for teams and, and you know go forward. But they just look absolutely devoid of any sort of game plan. I don't. I'd love to know what they speak about during the week. Yeah. Um, leading up to games because I don't see anything really on a on a weekend of watching them. The, the fewer times that I do watch them, I don't actually see any game plan or any sort of intent. Or I just can't work mm. them out. I, I, I don't know what they do during the week. I really don't. But yeah, Mike Ashley's if he's got any hopes of staying in the Premier League, then I think he, he absolutely has to. But you know, who, who do you get? I know. I mean, yeah, this is the question. That's the, that's the, I mean, who's going to who's going to really want to come into that job playing games before the end of the season? The team are shit out of form. They're, I think they're actually the bookies' favourites to go down now. Who's going to want to come in and take that? Because it looks like a foregone conclusion. So it might just be, listen, they'll just roll the dice with um, Steve Bruce and see what mm. they can get. And Andy, if I just read out the next 10 matches, essentially the last 10 matches that they've got to play. So they've got Tottenham at home next, followed by Burnley away, 
West Ham at home, away at Liverpool, at home to Arsenal, away to Leicester, at home to Man City, at home to Sheffield United, and then final day of the season, Fulham away. I can see you're laughing, but if you were to keep Steve Bruce in that role, I don't think you could see many points actually going Newcastle's way. I mean, yeah, out of that, you can maybe see him get something at West Ham because obviously quite an unpredictable team. You could probably see him getting points at Sheffield United because by that point, Sheffield United would be down and done. Uh, whereas Newcastle might still be in the race. And obviously, it, it depends on I mean, when it comes to the final four or five games of the season. I think a lot of it depends on where the teams are at. You know, if uh, if Newcastle still got something to play for, the other team doesn't, you give them a bit more of a chance. But yeah, at the moment, you just don't see where they're going to pick up points because the tactic has always been stick 10 men behind the ball and hope you get a lucky goal. Mm. And when... And, and you know it's a it's a rotten tactic, and but Bruce was getting away with it earlier in the season because yeah, Callum Wilson fit and in form. Same with Saint Maximan and uh, Almiron, although you know he doesn't get many goals, but he is very good on the ball. Yeah. Um, and because they're all in, because they're because uh, Saint Maximan and um, Wilson are injured, like they've got basically zero goals. And I think you know, the other thing as well is that when they were losing 3 0, they had Dwight Gale and Andy Cowan on the bench. I mean, all right, not exactly world class options, but the strikers, like your three goals down, mm. bring them on. And he didn't, he, did, he didn't do that. I mean, I know Newcastle fans never really wanted Bruce in the first place. And I think if he was under any other owner, then Mike Ashley, he'd have been drummed out back, you know, he'd have been drummed out a year ago. Uh, but unfortunately, mm. with Newcastle under Mike Ashley, they have no ambition. You know, if Mike Ashley knew, was like, you'll finish 17th every year, he would absolutely love it. Um, yeah. and I just don't want to see teams like that in the Premier League. And I, I feel sorry for the fans to an extent because I know they're extremely passionate about extremely passionate about their club you know they hate Mike Ashley to bits they've never warmed to Steve Bruce and they've been saying they've been saying for months even when Newcastle were doing all right they've been saying for months it's it's gonna go to shit it's gonna go to shit um but I think under that current ownership like I just hope they go down and you know and maybe down again I think if you got you know I reckon you to be honest I reckon Newcastle fans would take a double relegation if it meant get rid, getting rid of Mike Ashley, I genuinely think they would happen. I genuinely think they would take it because uh, they're not they're not going to go anywhere under the ownership. They're just mm. they're they're shit to watch. Like nobody likes the owner. They, they, there's no they've got no clue of how to. There's no vision there at all. It's just a rudderless club cleaning up the. Um, the TV money every year, and you think you want you want that to go to like an ambitious club, you know, like a Norwich who try and play good football and try and stay in the division by playing a certain brand of football. Fine, they went down, but at least they gave it a go. Or like Brentford, um, yeah. who've come up with some real cracking. They've got a cracking little squad, uh, which arguably should have been promoted last year, but they sort of messed it up at the end. Like you'd rather see teams like that in the Premier League giving it a go. Uh, rather mm. than just existing for the sake of existing. And that's what Newcastle do. 
yeah. so yeah, it won't be a shame if they go down at all. Well, I think Andy, most of those players wouldn't even make it into a League One squad, so um, probably in the right place if they do go <laughs> down that far. Um, just quickly, I wanted to touch in with you guys as well. Same time last week when we were on the pod, Tottenham were losing or had lost 3-0 to Dynamo Zagreb. And um, what was quite telling was the interview that Hugo Lloris gave after the match where he said, it's a disgrace. I hope everyone in the dressing room feels responsible. Um, And then when you read more into the quote, it seems quite damning of certain individuals. So just to read, I mean, to behave as a team is the most difficult thing in football. Whatever decision the manager makes, you have to follow the way of the team. If you follow the team only when you are the starting eleven, that causes big problems for the team because you pay. In one moment, you are going to pay in your season. Today, I think the consequences of that. We had great moments in the past because we could trust the togetherness that was in the team. In the background, as Laurie speaking, Dynamo Zagreb players were celebrating to then say today I don't know I'm not sure about that so it's quite damning in terms of it seemed to indicate certain players that weren't involved uh, or aren't giving 100% to that team I know we've been critical of Mourinho but I think that kind of says a lot about what's going on at Spurs as well Um, and it probably didn't help this week where Bale came out saying he's used Spurs as pretty much his fitness uh, gym pass to get him (laughs) ready for the Euros as well. Um, Just get your quick thoughts. So, um, Craig, what did you make of Hugo Lloris' outburst? But more importantly, what do you think that spells out for Spurs? I think as club captain, it's it's his prerogative to make comments like that. I wouldn't expect that from any other player in the team. However, it does stink of the manager's lost the changing room and it does it sounds like Mourinho's asking players to come on and do things and they're just point blank not doing it so for me it speaks of a lack of unity in the squad and it also speaks of that the manager's lost his effect with the players um, and when you find that both of those things happen inside a club it very 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 rarely uh, ends well for the manager so I, I'd be very surprised if if uh, Spurs win the, the League Cup final, I'd be very surprised if Spurs finish top four. And I think without either of those, I think Mourinho will be gone in the summer. Yeah, it doesn't spell good times for Spurs. And Andy, you've been obviously used to Mourinho being at a club like Man United um, and kind of creating those sort of divisions within the team. Um, and he's always used this excuse anyway this season to say he hasn't got the players he did that before at Man United. He's done that probably before at Real Madrid to an extent. I know he said that at Chelsea. Um, do you think this is the end of Mourinho now? Yeah, like I think Mourinho as a top class manager is finished. Like I know um, back in like, October when um, you know Tottenham battered United six one. Literally, there were Spurs fans everywhere going, "You got rid of the wrong guy." You know he's going to lead us back to the top of the table, like you know, we're, you know we're we're back kind of thing. Not that not that they were ever there in the first place, but in their minds they're back. Um, and yeah, it's just um, they're getting Mourinho third season meltdown extra early without any sort of success. And 
you know, the problem with Mourinho, he, he seems to struggle to keep a happy dressing room because ultimately, like every Premier League manager, you can only put 11 players out on the pitch and obviously you've got a squad of 10 or 11 other players who are not playing to try and keep him happy. And he's always seemed relatively incapable of doing that. Um, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I think it's all going to go to shit, basically. Um, and it's the same thing. He hasn't got the most out of the players that he's brought in. So if you look under Mourinho, you know, Giovanni uh, Lo Celso, like he's, they made his loan permanent for like 50 or billion quid. He's done absolutely nothing. Their, their striker, Vinicius, has not done very much in the time that he's had on the pitch. Um mm. You know, Stephen Bergwijn, I think he, he did well in the first couple of games, scored the winner against City, but he hasn't really done anything this season. You know, Gareth, with Gareth mm. Bale, he's taken him three or four months to get back to anything approaching match fitness, which probably wasn't what they signed up for. And again, you know, by all accounts, Mourinho's really happy to have him back. I think with the Bale comments... Bale is a bit like that. He doesn't speak very much, but when he does, he tends to be quite blunt about it. Um, yeah. I don't really think there's anything wrong with what he said because that's what he is doing. Mm -hmm. He's he's on loan. He's not there permanently. He is there to build match fitness, get regular football in time for playing for Wales, but he's going to see where he's at, at the end of the season. I think with Bale, probably what he's doing is seeing if Zidane's still there <laughs> when he comes yeah. back in the summer. Uh, I could that's the gamble he's taken. He's thinking, well, actually, if I come back to Madrid and Sedan's not there, I might be able to get I might be able to get some games. Um, mm. I think that's probably the thinking behind that. Um, and I think it is a little bit indicative of the atmosphere in the dressing room because um, I think Gareth Bell is one of those players. He needs a bit of like love and attention, and he needs to be in a happy camp where because when he when he plays for Wales, he's a different player altogether because there's a lot more unity. Mm. You know, he's probably gone from one awkward, awkward dressing room dynamics in Madrid to another more awkward dressing room dynamics into Tottenham. Um, and I think if they don't mm. get rid of Mourinho during the summer, they'll have what happened at United towards the end of his time, where the best players want to leave. Because uh, yeah. Martial wanted to leave, Pogba wanted to leave. There was a few players that in that United squad that wanted to get out as quickly as possible. Uh, Shaw being, you know, Luke Shaw being one of them. And the moment players like, say, say how, hypothetically speaking, Harry Kane turns around and goes, I'm not happy in this environment. I want to leave. Mourinho would be yeah. gone in within five minutes. Right, we'll move into Scotland. Um, same time last week, unfortunately, Rangers also went out to Slavia Prague. Um, however, that match was soured by uh, what happened to Glenn Kamara. So, um, yeah, fuck you, Slavia Prague and their fans. Um, but yep. Rangers had to dust themselves down for the Old Firm derby. Uh, ended one all. Um, from the outlook, obviously, it seemed like Rangers were missing James Tavernier on that right-hand side because Celtic took advantage down that side. El Hanusi scoring initially the first goal for Celtic before Buffalo Morales made sure he reminded all the Celtic fans about what they had just achieved this season. Um, it, the draw does mean, however, Steve and Gerrard won't be able to match Brendan Rodgers' record of 106 points, but it still maintains Rangers' record in terms of um, invincibility. So, um, 
Craig, let's get your thoughts on the match. I, I'm keen to actually understand what do you think you learned from that match? Because although it's pretty much like a pre-season friendly to an extent, because, you know, there wasn't much to play for in this match for Rangers, apart from rubbing it in Celtic's faces. Do you think you learned a little bit more from this Rangers side? Um, not particularly. I think I think we learned um, quite a lot about Celtic right enough. I think that was... Celtic's absolute best effort at beating us. They wanted to beat us badly to, to end our potentially invincible season. We had a third-choice centre-back playing at right-back, and it showed. Um, we came off of a very tiring week physically and emotionally for the club, um, and they still couldn't beat us. It was the first goal they scored against us all season. Our 10th goal we conceded all season. Um, so, nothing to fear into the last five games of the season and nothing to fear from Celtic next year to be honest unless they get a massive overhaul in the summer if the rumours about Roy Keane are true that would just be the cherry on top of the most fairy tale season because that's only going to go one way um, but the game itself for our old firm game I thought was actually quite quiet mm. particularly the first 20 minutes I was really surprised at how slow Celtic started I was expecting Celtic to really come at us after the week we've had um, tired legs. You know, lunchtime game on the Sunday. Um, we'd have only we'd have had a rest day on the Friday after the Slavia game. Maybe one day in um, at Auchenhow we're doing some training on the Saturday. So I was expecting Celtic to really go for the jugular. They didn't. They kind of sat off. Um, and then until the goal, it didn't really kick in. And after that, it was back and forth, back and forth. And on balance, Celtic probably deserved to win it, if I'm honest. I think Alan McGregor had to do what Alan McGregor does, pulled off some good saves. And I, was, I love it when Celtic fans on Twitter say, if it wasn't for McGregor, well, that's kind of how employment works. We employ a person for their skills and experience to do a job for us. And that's kind of how like football works. So that's why he's in goal. Um, <laughs> we know some good saves, good saves by McGregor. And, um, but the big, biggest thing for us was, was uh, Morelos getting his goal. Um, all we've heard since he joined us about how he hasn't got his old firm goal yet. Absolutely delighted for him um, when he got it. And it's quite funny if, if Celtic hadn't dropped points against Dundee United three weeks before, Morelos would have won his league with that draw yesterday. So Celtic fans mm-hmm. were probably quite glad that it was over because that would have been a league winning goal. But yeah, nothing really learned. Um, nothing won, nothing lost. We go into the split uh, when we come back. One more old firm game, which is uh, the bank called the weekend in May uh, on the Sunday, which is a recipe for disaster in itself if the pubs are open then. But yeah, we can, the only thing we've got really left to play for is is the invincible record, which we'll go for. But yeah, um, not a classic by any means, but got it apart here with a draw. And that's seven points from nine from them this season. And if you did offer me that in August, I'd bite your mm. hand off. Meanwhile, Aberdeen hired their new manager, a uh, replacement for Derek McInnes, which was Stephen Glass, who was currently at the time Atalanta United. And um, news that came through today is that Scott Brown has uh, come to a pre-contract agreement to join him as a player coach. Um, certainly interesting, given that he's now ended his 14-year association with Celtic and moves into that new role. Um, Andy, thoughts? Do you think this is quite an interesting development or is that inevitable given that his legs were pretty much done? I mean, his legs have been gone for two years. Um, I think he was only really kept on for sort of, you know, arguable leadership qualities and shit housing value, which granted he's always been uh, top notch at the shit housing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, if you are, I think he's realised himself, to be fair to him, that he's, he's, his legs are gone, his time at that 
level is gone. Um, obviously, no one knows what he's going to be like as a coach. Obviously, with Stephen Glass, he's done a lot of work with the Atlanta United um, youth team or reserve team. Um, and, you know, Atlanta United are, very, are a very professional outfit. And MLS, they haven't been around for too long, but um, they've put a lot of money into youth development and they've had some really good coaches there in the short time they've been in existence. So he's obviously highly thought of in football circles and I think he'll have good experience of working with, um, you know, a lot of like South American players uh, in terms of the travelling, the distance and managing games of that. I think um, that'll help maybe with the European side of things. So it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting appointment, a little bit out there. How, what Scott Brown mm. will be as a coach, we don't know. I think it's always important to try and differentiate the player and the coach. Like, for example, you know, Stephen Gerrard as a coach is probably is probably different to how he was as a player um, in some ways. So, you know, we don't... It's, it's an unknown quantity that would be interesting to see. I think with the... Um, I think it's another thing with the Roy Keane rumours. Like, ultimately, he's not had a job since 2011, since he left Ipswich. So nobody actually knows with any degree, certainly how he's going to do. Um, I think, you know, he took charge of Sunderland, got promoted from the Championship um, into the Premier League, and then took over Ipswich. If you look at where both clubs are now, they're in a hell of a lot worse place than than he was was there. Um, Obviously, I've been looking at some of the comments. I think a lot of the... A lot of Celtic fans are like, this is not the sort of a point we should be going for. You know, having gone for a progressive coach from Brendan Rodgers to Neil Lennon to Roy Keane, it feels like a massive step backwards. So I do think if he does get the job, he's got a lot to prove. Um, you know, because I think Roy Keane, for all of his, um, you know, theatre that he shows on Sky Sports, I think there is he is an intelligent guy. He knows a lot about the game. I mean, for, you know, I'll, I'll have a fondness for him because obviously for what he's done at, at Manchester United um, as mm-hmm. a player. And he's always very, you know, he's very honest and to the point. How it will translate to management, I don't know. You know, it could very well be another John Barnes kind of a level of uh, disappointment for Celtic. Um, but it'll be, it'll be, it certainly won't be short of entertainment, put it that way. Right, we'll move into the Bundesliga. That seemed to continue the theme of uh, sacking and hiring managers. So uh, we saw Peter Bosch get sacked at Leverkusen. Um, but we also saw Xabi Alonso be appointed the Mönchengladbach role. So he'll be taking over from Marco Royce, who's moving to Borussia Dortmund. Um, just a quick summary of the results that took place in the Bundesliga over last weekend. So Armenia lost 1-0 to Leipzig. Cologne drew 2 all to Dortmund. A Haaland double wasn't enough to save them there. Frankfurt won 5-2 against Union Berlin. So a real big result for Frankfurt there. Werder Bremen lost 2-1 to Wolfsburg. Schalke, our favourites, lost 3-0 to Mönchengladbach. Uh, Mönchengladbach actually winning a game for once. That was a shock. Hoffenheim continued to lose games. So uh, they lost to Mainz. And Mainz are now pulling themselves out of that relegation battle. Hertha, meanwhile, also won 3-0 to Leverkusen, which sealed Peter Bosch's future. And Freiburg won 2-0 against Augsburg. But, um, Craig, you're going to allude to another big match that took place, which was Bayern Munich against Stuttgart. And um, despite a sending off for Alfonso Davis, um, a perfect hat-trick by Lewandowski and a Serge Gnabry goal really shell-shocked Stuttgart. So, um 
yeah, what happened to Stuttgart? It was really quite strange. So I decided to watch this game. I was in the house on Saturday and I thought, um, I, as we are after lockdown, I don't know where else <laughs> I was going to be. And I thought, I'll watch this game because Stuttgart are having a really good season. Um, they came up last year. They were bubbling in mid-table. And I thought this would be quite a, a tight game for Bayern Munich. And then after 11, 12 minutes, Alfonso Davies gets sent off. Now, it was a yellow card initially, and VAR upgraded to a red. Now, nothing malicious in it, really. He's just gone a little bit over the ball. As soon as he'd done it, he realised, hands were up, apologising. But it is a red card challenge, essentially. And then that texts you guys on the group saying, oh, this just got exciting. Bayern's out of 10 men. <laughs> and then 11 minutes later, I text you again to say, don't worry, it's seen a Bayern. Yeah. Just don't worry about it. Um, Stuttgart seemed to just kind of panic a little bit it was almost like after they went uh, a man advantage they went one man up it was almost like the, the pressure came down on them as if they now felt that they had to win the game because they had the man advantage uh, they kind of froze a little bit uh, lost a bit of concentration and then Bayern Munich were back to I mean this is I'm talking like post lockdown Hansi Flick style they were so mm. fluid Lewandowski I mean every time I watch him I'm just I'm absolutely no I can't I can't remember in my lifetime a guy who can finish like him, just one touch, bang. It's it's quite frightening. Um, he's now five goals short of Gerd Muller's um, 71-72 record of 41 goals. He's got eight games to score five goals. It's definitely going to happen. That was a, a record that no one really thought would fall, particularly. And if you look at 41 league goals in Germany, they only play 34 league games. So they play four games less than they do in England. So to hit 41 goals in the league is, is a phenomenal achievement. And they're well on their way to doing that. Um, Gretzka, Nabry, all, yeah. all absolutely solid. And you'd have thought that it was Stuttgart that were down to the 10, um, really. And it just kind of shows you that it feels like Bayern are just hitting form at the right time that way that champions do. You know, last eight games of the season, you can see them going and winning six or seven out of these last, like the last eight and then going to win the league. Um, they play each other, Leipzig and Bayern after the international break. First game back. Um, anything but um, a Leipzig win there. I think that's it done. Mm-hmm. Leipzig, if you if you get a serious challenge, um, if Leipzig beat Bayern, they cut it to one point, make it nervous. If Bayern win at seven, and that'll be yeah. it. So, yeah, you're right to call it a game out. It was a bit of a mad game, but yeah, I guess it's not too surprising when you look at Bayern. And Andy, what do you make of the appointment of Xabi Alonso? Um, certainly has been winning plaudits while he's been at Real Sociedad. Um, do you think this is a good move for him? Yeah, I think it's it's, a, it's also a big win for the the football hipster movement. Uh, <laughs> so, but um, no, I think he he always comes you know he always comes across as a very sort of intelligent, round-rounded guy. You know, he worked with Guardiola towards the end of his career. Um, you know, I can see a lot of similarities to um, what Mikel Arteta is doing at um, Arsenal mm. um, in, in many ways. So. You know, and he's quite he likes to sort of said low Guardian journalist who's based in Spain, spoken highly of him beforehand. So I think I think he'll do a good job, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, I think he, 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 he strikes me as a guy who will want to play the game, you know, lots of like short passing football, smooth transitions, like a proper sort of uh, team structure in place. Uh, but ultimately it's an unknown quantity because, you know, being a reserve team manager is a completely different kettle of fish. Obviously being the first team manager, you know, of a big club um, in a big league. So um, yeah, it, it was, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you can do. 
And Craig, let's get your thoughts on Peter Bosch. So he's got a habit of having a really poor second season or second half to a season anyway. Um, Leverkusen went down to sixth place as a result of that defeat against Hertha Berlin. Um, are you a bit surprised given that he had money in January to kind of spend on that squad? And yet, you know, results of late have been pretty poor. But do you think the expectation there is to make the top four? Yes, uh, and I was surprised because all the all the noise coming out of Leverkusen was that his job was safe. It was Peter Bosch is our guy. He's going to be here till the next season. But I suppose you know a defeat like that three 0 at Hertha and Hertha we've spoken about in the pod are are absolutely garbage. And I think that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. They have to be looking at this year and thinking they they should be top four with a, a lesser Dortmund team then they would expect themselves to be top four. They're quite far off that, albeit Frankfurt and Wolfsburg are having good seasons. I think for for them it was probably just enough. Like any sacking, it depends who you're going to get in. I would I would like to think that Leverkusen have got a plan. Mm. Um, if they don't, then, you know, sometimes it's better the devil you know, and I wonder whether Peter Bosch could have turned it around. But, yeah, very surprised. I thought he was there to, to the end of the season. And they only sat in sixth. I mean, it's not like... You know, it's not like an Arsenal with a mid-table or, or anything like that. It's not like it's an absolute disaster, but what you do have to remember is they did they did get put out of the Europa League by Young Boys. got beat on both legs. I think they went out the DFB Pokal from a, a third or fourth division team as well. So it's not just the league form. The league form has been poor and, and patchy at best, but their performance in the cup competitions has been pretty, pretty abysmal. Mm. And I think that's probably, I think the board have probably considered that as well. Cool. We'll quickly do a whistle top tour of League On because, um, quite rightly, Craig, you were calling out for PSG to potentially come back on top, and they did, Julie, thanks to a 4 2 win against Lyon. Um, helped by the fact that Lille also lost to Nimes 2 1 at home, so a bit of a shock there. Um, we saw that thunder goal by Lorient against Nantes. I don't know if you guys saw that thunder bastard from about 30,000 yeah. miles away. Um, but yeah, he's going to be compared to the next Roberto Carlos every time. Uh, nice also pulled off a shock by uh, winning 3-0 against Marseille. And Etienne continues to be really poor and shit, uh, losing 4-0 to Monaco. Monaco seems to be that outsider right now. Um now, if we quickly move into Serie A, because lots of things happened in Serie A as well. So the Witches came out to Turin as Benevento beat Juventus. Um, I call this as the performance of the weekend, personally, because um, Benevento, although they just took their chance, they defended for their lives and they are absolutely deserved that point. Um, it's quite interesting coming out of that, though. We've had... Obviously, Pavel Nedved confirming that Cristiano Ronaldo will be staying at the club and Andre Pirlo will be in the role up until next season at least. Um, we had a listener question from Stephen Cole, which asked us, do we think Juventus will miss out on the Champions League qualification spots? So, um, Craig, let's bring it to yourself. I mean, Juventus have been kind of up and down with their performance, but yeah, they're now in danger of actually falling out of the top four. So do you think they've still got it within them to stay in that top four, given that they've still got a game in hand? I think so. I I think they will finish top four, but it's not really through any faith of Juventus um, 
and their ability to put a run together. I think it's more towards the three clubs or four clubs that are below them being quite inconsistent. Um, if you look at the top floor right now, I'm looking at the table. You've got Inter Milan, who will win the league, absolutely. Um, you've got AC Milan, Juventus and At- Atalanta. Below those four, you, you've got Napoli, Roma and Lazio. Um, I don't think either of those three clubs over the next you know, 10, 11 games will put a run together that will, will break into the top four. So I think that top four will be as it is. Um, <sighs> Ronaldo... You know, his numbers at Juventus have been good and you can't say that the, the signing's been a total failure in terms of what Ronaldo's done. But you have to admit, in terms of the squad and the team and the club, it has been a failure because he's been brought in to, to continue winning the league and win European honours. And they haven't done that. And I'm almost now of the opinion of would they be better to offload Ronaldo, free up that, that money and try and rebuild around other players at the club rather than kind of continue on with Ronaldo. Um, I don't know what you think, Adam, but for me... I think he put it down as a field experiment and potentially move on. Yeah, I mean, if it's just to get my quick thoughts on it, I'd say I think Juventus still have it within them to stay in that top four. Just a question of in which order, personally. I think AC Milan will probably stay as they are. And it's just a question of who's going to be stronger out of Atalanta and Juventus to stay in that kind of third and fourth spots. But yeah, I was just going to bring in Andy as well. So... um, what do you make of that announcement by Pavel Nedved about Cristiano Ronaldo's future? There had been a lot of sniffing around potentially from Real Madrid to bring him back to the club and Zidane certainly didn't seem to uh, dismiss that kind of transfer rumour. So, um, yeah, I don't know if Real Madrid have got the funds really, but do you think he could still make that move back to Real Madrid? (sighs) I think in the current sort of pandemic environment, I do see it as being difficult because, um, you know, I think had we been talking like a year down the line, probably, um, but, you know, I'm pretty sure Juventus are going to want a transfer fee or some description despite his age. Mm. And then you've got his wages. Um, I mean, he's on an absolutely astronomical amount of money at Juve. Um you know, like seven, eight underground a week or something ridiculous like that. Um, he's on an absolute fortune. I think, as Craig said, I mean, as an individual player, you can't really argue with the output that he gets in terms of goals. You know, he was born to score goals. He scored goals. Um, he, but I think because of his lack of mobility and, you know, um, because he obviously conserves his energy, he's not really the sort of player that you can build a free-flowing football team round. Like everybody, it's like a sort of a siege, like a Trojan horse. You have to wheel in position <laughs> and then uh, fire away. Um, you know, I think if they're, yeah, it's just um, I think Juventus are stuck with him because I think he's got like another year left on his contract. Mm. Um, and I think probably what they're going to do is just go well sod it. We'll just have to just have to keep him for another year and um, go from there. And I think Juve have got a few problems because if they don't qualify for the Champions League, they've got Ronaldo on absolutely huge wages. You've got Aaron Ramsey on the wages that he's on. You've got Rabiot on on you know a pretty hefty amount because although Juve don't spend much on transfer fees and they get a lot of players in on the cheap, they do pay an absolute bucket ton in terms of like the wage bill. Um, so yeah, I think 
if we got rid of Ronaldo, it would allow for a rebuild, but I don't think anybody's going to be able to afford it this summer. It's just, I find it funny where you see like newspapers going like, oh, Madrid are going to spend a hundred million on this player. This club's going to spend a hundred million on that player. I don't, apart from two clubs, uh, which are Manchester City and Chelsea, I don't see anybody else forking out that kind of money for anybody, Ronaldo included. Quickly, just do a roundup of the results that happened in Serie A. So, Parma lost 2-1 to Genoa. Didn't see uh, Graziano Pelle uh, respond to our tweet, but never mind. Uh, Crotone lost 2-3 to Bologna. Spezia won 2-1 against Calgary. Inter's match with Sassuolo was postponed due to COVID. Uh, five players contracted COVID, so that's a bit of a shocker for them. Um, in the meantime, Verona lost 2-0 to Atalanta. Sampdoria won 1-0 against Torino. Udinese also lost to Lazio 1-0. Uh, AC Milan won 3-2 away at Fiorentina. And Craig's favourite team, Roma, uh, lost 2-0 to Napoli. Uh, we won't talk about Roma, but Lazio have been in discussion around Simeone and Zaghi's future as well. Um, despite the fact that they did win over the weekend, it seems like recent form has been the main concern for Lazio. Um, another shocker that came out of Fiorentina, though, was Cesar Prandelli, who resigned from Fiorentina, um, described as uh, having a dark cloud developing inside of him. So we hope he recovers in the meantime. He's been replaced by his predecessor, Giuseppe Iannacci, who has come to replace him at Fiorentina. Um, Andy, I know you wanted to talk also about the landmark deal for the Women's Super League. So um, it seems like there's an agreement between BBC and Sky over a three-year deal. Uh, it's said to be worth seven to eight million per season. And the BBC will be required to show at least 18 of these matches on the BBC One or BBC Two channels. So um, quite a big deal for the women's game. Um, I know you're quite an expert on it. So um, just for the listeners' benefit, what does that transpire and what does that mean for the women's game? So, yes, the £8 million a season is the biggest TV rights deal, you know, in the women's league in the world, Um, you know, outstripping the likes of what they've got in America. Um, So it is like a massive, massive deal. I mean, obviously, you know, if you compare it to the context of men's football, it doesn't seem that much. But in terms of women's football, it is. I think what that will allow will be, you know, will allow the clubs that are reliant, on parent clubs to be able to support themselves better. Um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them is going to go into grassroots coaching, development, um, and that side of it. You know, a lot of people sort of complain about the standards, um, but I think the thing that people need to bear in mind is that, especially in England, the women's game has only been professional for a few years in comparison. So you're playing catch up. Um, and, it, and I think it's improving year on year. I think eventually we'll get to a place where the WSL is the best league in the world. I mean, you've got Manchester City and Chelsea, who you know, both owners have put an awful lot of backing into their women's teams. Uh, you know, they're getting the likes of obviously the US internationals, like Sam Miris in Chelsea. You've got the Australian international, Sam Kerr, uh, Peniel Harder, 
uh, Scandinavian players, one of the best players in the world. So they get, you know, they're starting to attract the top players. And I think with that sponsorship deal, with more money going into the clubs, that'll really increase. And I think the other thing as well is that you get a lot of people going like, oh, um, nobody's going to watch it. And I think ultimately the likes of Sky and, um, you know, BBC, they wouldn't be paying £8 million a year for something that nobody's going to watch. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, if it helps if by making those games more visible um, and easier to watch, it, you know, it encourages younger younger girls to, um, to take up the game, then that's absolutely great to see. Because uh, ultimately, that's what it's about. Like, you know, if I, as a kid, I had the pleasure of growing up and watching, like, gigs and Beckham and all that kind of stuff. Um, you want to see the same with young girls watching their clubs. Um, so, yeah, and I think you've got United playing the next game against Everton. The women's team playing at Old Trafford for the first time. Um, so they, at the moment, they play the home games at Lee Sports Park. Um, but yeah, it's definitely giving visibility, and I think it shows that the the game is growing towards like long term sustainability. And to get that kind of deal in like a pandemic, I think is really really good. Mm-hmm. So I think um, you know for people sort of new into watching it, I think it'll only result in getting better players, making it more entertaining to watch. Um, I if they manage it well, you know, they have it sort of side by side of the men's games um, and things like that. You know, if they brought, if they do a good job of broadcasting it and not making sure it doesn't clash uh, with other games, um, I think it'll go down really, really well. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, if there's a game on BBC, um, you sat there on like a Saturday afternoon and it's on, then I'm going to watch it. So, yeah. Good news for the women's game there. So we'll move into part two. And unlike normal kind of part two's listener, we're actually going to be talking about the World Cup qualifiers. And in particular, it drove a lot of listener questions around this section. So we'll start off by reflecting on the results that happened last night. So um, Portugal won 1-0 against Azerbaijan. Serbia won 3-2 against Ireland. France drew one all against Ukraine. Ukraine managed by uh, Andrei Shevchenko, which I didn't actually know. He'd actually uh, turned up there. Uh, Belgium won 3-1 against Wales. And Turkey caused a bit of a shock by beating the Netherlands 4-2. Estonia lost 2-6 to Czech Republic. Gibraltar lost 3-0 to Norway. Cyprus and Slovakia saw a 0-0 draw. And Slovenia beat Croatia 1-0, which may cause a shock to many. Um, and as we speak tonight, we see Germany versus Iceland, Spain versus Greece, Italy versus Northern Ireland, Scotland playing Austria, England versus San Marino and Hungary versus Poland. So a lot to digest there. Um, I'm sure we'll reflect in terms of the fixtures that are going to be taking place over the weekend as well. But let's start off by talking about England because we've had a lot of listener questions aimed at this. So we'll start off with yourself, Andy. Uh, first question came in from Chelsea Journal, which asked us, is Southgate a good enough manager to win the Euros with England? Ooh. No. For want of a short answer, it's... Um... Yeah, it's it's one of those like um, 
he's done some good work. Like if you compare it to previous England managers, there's a good atmosphere around the camp. The players seem to really, really enjoy playing for England, which, you know, you can't, you know, back in the days of Gerard and Lampard and the Capello days, that really wasn't the case. So I think in that respect, he's done some good work. It's just when you're, when you're coming up against the likes of say France or Croatia in a semi-final and you need to, make changes in order to try and win the game and make some tactical adjustments. Like, do I think he's capable of um, making that difference? I don't. Um, but that's, you know, that's, but that's not to say, you know, Phillips, Scalari won a bloody world cup with Brazil when he's done fuck all since. Uh, so, you know, mm. it, anything out there is possible. I think Mike Cerne with Southgate, he seems a little bit loyal to certain players. Like for example, He's, you know, his loyalty to um, Jordan Pickford, you know, defies com- comprehension that in times if you look at his form this season, you know, Eric Dyer continues to get starts for England, despite the fact he's, you know, woefully out of form at the moment. Um, I think, yeah, so my, my faith is more of that. I just don't think he has the ability to put out the best lineup to win a game. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm more than happy to be proved wrong and I'll be dancing in the street with my shirt off of England in the Euros. So we'll see. And Craig, it's the typical kind of thing with England. So we kind of have this hype. We believe in ourselves. They feel like they're going to take on the world and bring the cup back home. Um, but then to a degree at the last World Cup in Russia, obviously there was no belief that they could do it. Um could that be the same replicated here in the sense of there's a lot of talented players, but the fans don't feel they can do it. And maybe that's the kind of, you know, confidence that they need to kind of prove the doubters wrong. So, but having said that, I know Southgate has been known for not having the tactical nous to pull it off in certain games. So do you think he's got it within him to win something with England? Or do you think England have just got to try again? I, I think he, I think he could win it. Um, I put less stock in international managers and club managers because they, I feel like they spend a lot less time with the players matching. It's less about game plans and and tactics than it is about just pure football and ability. Um, but Andy is right. I find some of his starting 11s quite baffling. I think his in-game management can be questioned. Uh, I think when he comes up against. A DDD Shom or a Luis Enrique or someone of that type. Um, I think his in-game management can be found wanting. But on paper, England have got one of the strongest squads going into the tournament. I mean, as you said, is there no pressure? Even if even if England scraped through, qualified on penalties, and it was the most abysmal qualifying campaign ever. As soon as England win two games, the that hype train is going to start start plowing, and you know what's going to happen. It's all the videos on. BBC one and it's coming home and it's it's inevitable. But I think there is some genuine hope because I mean you look at that England squad from, from front to back, there are players who are playing excellent football. There are players who have who have been in that Liverpool team. Talking Henderson and Alex Arnold, you're talking about players at Raheem Sterling, Phil Foden, who are at the absolute some of the best players in Europe at the moment. So on paper, absolutely they can win it. Will they win it? I think they'll probably run headfirst into maybe a Germany or a, a France probably in the semi-finals and it might be found wanting. But you never know with that stuff in England. I mean, I remember watching the sort of England teams of 
2002, 2008, and you're thinking, how did they not win something mm. with those guys? And I hope that we don't get to five years down the line and we think, oh, why? How did Raheem Sterling and Phil Foden never win a tournament? Because I think they've got the ability to do so. Andy, let's move on to the next listener question, and this was from our good friend Rory from the Anglo-Italian pods. Um, he asked us, should Bamford be in the England squads? I know there's been rumours considering or him considering the Republic of Ireland role as well, so going and turning out for them. And previously, it's believed that Mick McCarthy and Martin O'Neill tried to persuade him. Um, now it looks like there's a reality that he does want to play international football. Personally speaking, I think no. And my rationale is he's only had one good season in the Premier League. Granted, he's in form, but... I don't know where he'd fit in that England squad personally. So what about yourself? Do you feel the same or do you feel differently? I think, um, I mean, if you look at his goal output alone, you know, if he's like the second or third highest scoring Englishman, you would argue perhaps he does deserve at least a chance uh, to prove himself. Uh, but, you know, when you're going to a major tournament and you take three or four strikers, you want those three or four strikers to each add something different. Um, obviously, with uh, Bamford, you know he's he's good. He's got good hold up play. He's good good with his back to goal. He could bring other players in quite nicely, um, and he's a very you know intelligent footballer. But ultimately, Harry Kane does exactly the same thing, only with much much better output. So he's not really giving you any different anything giving you anything different to what England have because you've got Harry Kane to do all of that and he's one of the best all-round forwards you know in Europe um so yeah I can understand why Southgate's thinking well what's he gonna add whereas if you look at Ollie Watkins he's got pace to burn he's a big lad he has a different kind of problem uh to opposition players and that's what you want going into a tournament so I think but like I said you never know like this there's another couple of months of the season if he goes and bangs in another eight nine or ten goals and maybe what maybe it'd be a different conversation but I just don't really see what he could add different to the squad that the established you know, likes of, say, Rashford and Kane can't, uh, or even Danny Ings. He's another one who's a similar type of player, but when he's fit, his output is much better. Um, so I think it's just unfortunate mm. for him that he's a good player, but not, unfortunately, England are quite well stocked with decent strikers. Yeah. Um, and if you look at future years, they're going to be they're going to be continually well stocked. So yeah, I think you might as well find if he's find out if he's got an Irish grandmother and get his passport <laughs> sorted. And uh, Craig, we've got quite a juicy question that's come up. So it's for all three of us really to answer. But yeah, let's get your thoughts first. So based on the current England squads, who would be your 11 right now? Um, So looking for tactics that you would play in terms of formation and the players you would pick as your 11. So um, yeah, what would be your first 11, Craig? So you'd said about this question before we came on here, so I've been doing some scribbling um, as I've been talking. So I would go sort of 4-2-3-1. Uh, traditional, I'd have Nick Pope and goals. Uh, right back, I'd have Trent Alexander-Arnold. Now, I know he's a bit out of form, but I still think he was the guy I would want. Um, going forward, I would have Luke Shaw at left back, um, two centre-halves, John Stones and Harry Maguire. Um, in midfield, the two central midfielders, I'd have Henderson and then one of... Declan Rice or Phillips from Leeds, depending on the opposition. 
Uh, my three attacking midfielders, I would have Rashford, Sterling and Foden. And then obviously up front, Harry Kane. Um, okay. So yeah, no starting posi- position for Jack Grealish or uh, Jaden Sancho, um, mm. which, are, which is disappointing you can't get them in. But that's that would be my starting 11 for, for the first game in the Euros. Interesting. And what about yourself, Andy? So I think um, I would be starting with Nick Pope in goal. I mean, part of me would say Henderson, but at the end of the day, Nick Pope starting week in, week out. He's played much more games. Uh, so I think he you know, deserves his place. I think in terms of right back, in terms of like ability, like you would say, you would say Alexander-Arnold being fine. He got dropped for, he got dropped for the current squad at the moment. But in terms of ability, I think he's still hands down the best right back, certainly in attacking sense that we've got. Um, I think Maguire and Stones are probably the best centre-back partnership we can come up with. Like I don't really see what better partnership we could put out, to be honest. Like I know um, there's a lot of people who aren't a fan of Harry Maguire, but he's still for England's best centre-back along the stones in my opinion uh, Luke Shaw on current form has to start there is a not there's not really a left back in the Premier League full stop let alone an English one that is in better form than he is at the moment if he doesn't start at the Euros it'd be a fucking travesty you know I'd be looking at sort of like a 4-3-3 shape personally so I'd be looking at starting say Declan Rice um, you know, in midfield and then supported um, depending on the type of game you're playing I think it's fair to say, if you're playing a game where you're expected to take the initiative and win I'll be playing Mason Mount probably in the centre midfield and then um, Jack Grealish more in like an attacking sense um, and then in terms of like the front three I'd be looking at Rashford on the left. He's electric when he's sort of cutting in. Um, and then they'd be looking at Sterling um, and then obviously Harry Kane up front. Um, but yeah, I think the only sort of mitigation I would say is that when you're, when we need to play a little bit more defensive, I would argue playing, you know, Henderson um, or uh, Phillips in mm-hmm. place of, say, Grealish. Because I think there's going to be certain games. I think that's the thing that does frustrate me about Southgate is that there's going to be play games where you need to play with a few more attacking players in order to take initiative and win. If it's going to be a game we need to sit back and defend, you you kind of need a couple more defensive-minded players. Um, I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of why I think wan being overlooked is um, an odd one because I think if you need a game where you need to shut the shut a player down, as in take him out of the game, like for example Mbappe, to do a job on him, not contributing in an attacking sense, just take somebody out of the game, someone like that would be a really good job. Um, so yeah, that would be, I think that would more or less be my lineup. What about you? Yeah, I think we've got some similarities, but I will probably uh, knock the apple cart with one of them. So I'm going with a 4-3-2-1 formation. Uh, Pope in goal, so that's agreed, I think, generally abroad. Uh, Trent Alexander at right back. Uh, Luke Shaw at left back. At centre back, I've got John Stones and uh, Tamori. Um, So yeah, I appreciate he hasn't played as much. Um, but I feel like he's one of those that if you're going to get someone that's going to bleed into that squad in the future, I think he's someone that really is doing really well at Serie A. Granted, he's no uh, Harry Maguire, but yeah, um, I just feel like if you're going to do any bleeding in, then this is the time you do it. Anyway, defensive uh, midfield, I've got Calvin Phillips. In the centre, I'd have Declan Rice and Foden. And then in the attacking midfield, I'd have just behind Kane, I'd have Grealish and Sterling just because they can interchange and swap sides. So, um, 
yeah appreciate that's a bit of a different kind of lineup but yeah i think we're generally broadly agreeing on majority of that squad anyway and then we'll move into our final question for us here um and it's sent in by ollie who asked us who are our dark horses for the euros so um yeah, quite an interesting one, given that we haven't seen much of the national sides recently, but um, there's a lot to uh, dwell on there. So, Andy, who do you think is your dark horse for the Euros? Uh, I suppose a lot of people aren't talking about Portugal, to be honest. Um, I mean, they've got a heck of a lot of talent in their squad. You know, you've got Ruben Diaz at centre-back, you've got Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, like, um, you know, Goncalo Juarez, like, they've got some cracking players there, like, um, that I think if they they can go on a bit of a run, they'll, um, they could potentially win it. Obviously, they won the Euros last time around, let's be honest, they are actually the reigning champions. Um, you could argue they've actually got a better squad than they did have a few years back, so... Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I would have them down as a dark horses, which is weird to say. And what about yourself, Craig? Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to. Another kind of strange one. It's, it would be hard to call Germany dark horses, um, <laughs> but after winning the World Cup in 2014, they've been shocking in tournaments. Um, the defence of the World Cup title in 2018 was terrible. Um, they've not been fantastic in the qualifying. They've they went to to Spain in a friendly and got absolutely hammered. I don't think there's any expectation on Germany, but with um, Louvre leaving after it, um, it was almost a sort of, when Louvre was in the job, there was a pressure on him to get rid of the old guard, bring in new players, start to kind of bleed them in. Now that that pressure's off long-term, where he doesn't need a long-term plan, he's now talking about getting Boating back in the squad, he's now talking about Thomas Muller back in the squad, and I've just got a feeling that they might... Uh, surpass their own expectations here and, and really make a deep run into the competition. So, yeah, a bit of a cheat. Can't really say Germany are dark horses, um, but I think that they could surprise themselves and surprise others. Mm. What about yourself, Adam? Who do you think? Yeah, another strange one for the listener, but I actually feel Italia, Italy are going to be one of the dark horses for this tournament. Um, there's no expectation as far as I've seen from the Italian press um, and with Mancini in charge, He's getting a group of players that are, you know, playing for the team right now. They're young, they're hungry. In Chiesa, you've got someone that looks like he's really in the peak of his form right now. And, you know, when I've seen Italy recently against Poland, for example, you've just got that feeling of they just get a job done, uh, which isn't what you'd normally associate with Italy of old um they were obviously a very much more skillful team and uh, flamboyant at times but actually there's a different side to this mancini Itali- italy side anyway that's for sure so yeah for me i just feel like they got something to offer in this tournament um craig just to um highlight the listener what are the fixtures that we should look out for in the next few days though well, I don't know if there's any you should look out for. Um, <laughs> I'll talk you through the games that are on. Um, I don't know if I look out for them. So, on Saturday, um, in terms of World Cup qualification, you've got Russia versus Slovenia, Belarus, Estonia, Croatia, Cyprus, Norway, Turkey might be okay. That might be not bad. Um, Netherlands host Latvia, Czech Republic, Belgium might be okay. Ireland, Luxembourg, Serbia, Portugal, 
And then Wales, Mexico on Saturday night. I think I'll probably watch that actually just for um, something to watch on Saturday into Sunday. Uh, Kazakhstan play France, Denmark, Moldova, Georgia play Spain, Albania, England, Northern Ireland, USA, which may be worth a watch, Bulgaria, Italy, Israel, Scotland, which I'm not going to watch. I feel like we play Israel every other week at the moment, um, <laughs> Scotland. Poland versus Andorra, Romania versus Germany, might be okay Sunday night. And then there are a load of games on, on Tuesday and Wednesday, and to be honest, I've got a bit bored right now. <laughs> but one to do look out for next Wednesday is England versus Poland. Um, at Wembley, so that might be the kind of the pick of the games next week. So we'll be back with the Gipke uh, Derby. <laughs> yeah, the Gipke Derby and the, the Gipke household. So yeah, we'll be back next week with some some better fixes. I would have thought. Um, and what I might do next week is do just a little a twenty seconds or so on each of the leagues to see where where each league is sitting going to the final straight. But yeah, some games to watch. Nothing I would I would grab my way to watch, but there's plenty of football on. Yeah, and speaking about Poland, they are currently losing three two to Hungary. Um, so yeah, this certainly will spice it up. There's about twelve minutes to go. Poland did bring themselves back into it, but yeah, it's now just gone literally as we were speaking three two to Hungary. So uh, yeah, not very happy boy that one. Um, so we'll move into the end of the show. So uh, thank you, listener. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, for the benefit of a listener, you'll be able to hear me as a guest on the Blues Brother podcast. Um, so this is the Chelsea podcast. Um, so I'm sure they're saying they didn't actually mean me. They actually meant Craig and Andy. But um, yeah, I'll be turning up on their podcast, giving them my wisdom around all the different things. So um, if you have any questions for me that you'd like me to put to those guys, uh, feel free to message our pod on our social media. Um, but I'm sure we'll be sharing the links as well in due course so uh many thanks to andy and craig hope you guys have a good week and weekend and to you listener hope you also have a good weekend or week when you're listening to this and for now goodbye